Hi there and welcome to Doxadeo Bloemfontein North. Thank you for joining us and we hope you enjoy the message. Today we are in our final week of a series called uh, All Things New. And it comes from a scripture in Revelation 21 verse 5 where Jesus is sitting... Oh, Jesus is sitting on the throne and he proclaims, I am making all things new. I am making all things new. Now, it's very important for us to just clarify that Jesus is not saying, I am making all new things. I am making all things new. Because the way that Jesus works, and it's, it's as if Jesus is this, he's this artist, Right? And, and his masterpieces, the, the kind of art that Jesus is into most is the kind of art when you take broken things and you create art out of it. So the type of artist that Jesus is, he is not the type of artist that throws away and buys a blank canvas and just starts over completely. He's the kind of artist that takes what is there and redeems it. There's actually artists like this... Um, uh, with the name Jane Perkins. Now, she takes broken jewelry as well as uh, plastic toys, broken plastic toys, and she uses that to create art. Now, isn't that a picture of the church? You know those jewelry pieces that you have maybe at home? that you think you're going to find the other earring at some point in time, but then you put the one like in that one cupboard, um, you know, or that one drawer that's got all the leftover stuff. Uh, I mean, I've got this one drawer, and they, they, I don't know how many batteries are in there, but they, they don't work anymore. I don't know why I can't throw them away. It's like they, they, they seem like they're precious because they cost a lot of money, so I keep them. Anyone else like that, right? Lots of broken jewelry or that, that watch wrist band that you think you're going to fix at some point, but you've, it's, you know, it's eight years later and you still haven't. Jesus specializes in that kind of art. doesn't just start over. He takes what is there, what is broken, and what is discarded by the world, and he makes art out of it. There's another artist, uh, Derek Gores, or Gores, uh, however you pronounce his surname, but he uses recycled magazines to create art out of it. He takes what other people have used up and have thrown away, and he takes that to create art out of it. And that's the kind of artist that Jesus is. Now, in this church, I love this picture because that, that's the picture of the church. And, and so if you feel this morning that you are a broken piece of, of jewelry that is not very useful to the master or you just feel like you, know, you are used up or not very valuable, then this is the right church for you. God wants to create art out of you. And what I love about you know, both of these pictures is if you take one of those elements, a broken piece of jewelry or a broken piece of plastic from a toy or just one you know, piece from a magazine, it's not much. Uh, there's nothing to behold if, if you take only one of them. But if you combine all of these broken pieces together, it starts creating a masterpiece. And it's the same thing with you and me. On our own, there's not as much that we can do. But that's this picture of the church. It's putting these broken pieces together. God is this choreographer, and he's an artist, and he creates something uh, out of that. Now, 
in this series, we've been uh, just discussing this idea that sometimes the gospel that we have grown up with is a very narrow understanding of the Bible. Uh, for many of us, there is sort of like this over-focus. If, for many of us, we grew up, um, you know, hearing the message like that where there's this over-focus on the sin of mankind and that Jesus can save you, can forgive your sins so that you can one day go to heaven and where heaven is the goal. And then we become this kind of church that is so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good because the goal in life is to get my sins forgiven so that I can go to heaven one day. Now, although that is part of the truth, remember in week one, we spoke about the four chapter gospel and how important it is to understand that the story of the Bible starts in Genesis chapter one already. It doesn't start with the fall of man. It starts when God created everything and he looks at everything and he says, it is good. He creates mankind. He looks at you and he says, it is very good. I I like it. I like what I made in you. And then there's the brokenness in this world that is brought about by sin. And so we know the rest of the story. And then Jesus comes and with his finished work on the cross and in the resurrection and his ascension and the pouring out of his Holy Spirit over his people, in that moment, Jesus restores that which was broken. But yet we are still on this earth and everything is not heaven, is it? And so then we add the fourth chapter. So that's the third chapter. But then we see Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, Jesus saying, I'm making all things new. And so as a church, as people today, in the time we are living in today, we are living in that time where the work of Jesus has been completed for you, right? There's nothing you need to do more to become a child of God than put your faith in Jesus. His work is enough for you so that you can be forgiven and call yourself a son or a daughter of God. So we are in that time where the work has been finished. So in other words, you've already been redeemed. Okay, You've been made new. That's what the Bible says. So just quickly thinking back on that picture of that artist taking broken things, creating something new out of it. The reason why God would want to do that with us is because when he created us, He put value on us. Because you are valuable. If you don't believe that human beings are valuable and this creation is valuable, well, what's the point of redemption? What's the point of making things new? But because there's value, and yes, we've broken things, Jesus has come to make us new. And you are standing in the moment where you have already been made new, but now Jesus is busy making you new as you become more and more like Christ, Because as you know, you might be a son or daughter of God, but you still get irritated with that one friend, right? He's still working on your patience. He's still making you a little bit more new, making you more like Jesus. Not only you, but also society. He's busy doing it with society. There's a work that has been finished and it's busy happening, present continuous tense, and it is a work that will be completed at some moment in future. And we are so looking forward to that day, the the time of incorruptibility, where the work, this renewing work of Jesus is fully completed. But the place where we find ourselves now is that we are not of this world, but we are in it. Therefore, God has called us to be present, to be present in this world, not to be a church that tries to escape the world, but to be a church that is in the world, making all things new.
Now, that's the one part of it. But the second part we need to understand is that God has decided the way that he makes things new is through partnership. He doesn't do it by himself. And just think about Genesis chapter 1. Has God ever worked by himself? He loves using people. Genesis chapter 1. He creates everything. So don't you think he could have just taken care of everything by himself? He created everything, but then he says, Adam, I want you to rule and reign and have authority. Take care of everything. You can name the animals. He gives us authority. When he frees the Egyptians, or the, not the Egyptians, the Israelites from the Egyptians, right? How does he do it? He does it with partnership. He uses a Moses and an Aaron and all of the other leaders in that time with partnership. The New Testament, Jesus does the work for us, but the church over the past 2,000 years has exploded and it's, it's still growing today. How? Through the hands and the mouths of believers. Revival is always through the hands and the mouths of believers. The Holy Spirit is working, but He's working through a human being. And so today also, the way that God makes all things new is through people. Now, the big question then still remains, how does God make things new today? And so we're saying He's using partnership. But it's so important for us, just in this series, uh, if you want, wonder it, why do we put emphasis on you know, Genesis as well as Book of Revelation so that we have a full picture? Because if you've got a narrow picture of only sin and redemption, the way that you will live is a passive life because you will just wait for heaven. And we won't be very active Christians. But if we understand the full picture and that God has included us in the work that he's doing in this world, it activates the church. So Mark chapter 8, from verse 1 to 21, we're going to be studying that passage of Scripture because it gives us a number of things that we can take home. And I'm trusting, as we read this, uh, I want to ask you to just open your heart. Whatever God wants to tell, to tell you today, now he might be saying different things to different people this morning, but as we study the Scripture, just open up your heart and allow Jesus to come and speak to you. So Mark chapter 8, is that miracle where Jesus takes seven loaves of bread and he multiplies it and he feeds 4,000 people. Now, that miracle sounds a lot like when I say that, some of your first thought might be, well, wasn't it 5,000? And wasn't it five loaves and two fish? Well, that was another miracle. You see, there were two. And Mark chose, and so you might ask the question, why would Mark write down the same miracle twice? Or even if Jesus did it twice, why would he write it down two times? He already made his point. And so that's something we're going to explain to you just uh, afterwards also, as to why the significance of both of these miracles, the identical miracles taking place, but they were taking place in two different areas. And so in Mark chapter 6, it's the story of the five loaves, the two fish, and Jesus multiplying it in the disciples' hands as they were distributing it. And then 5,000 men, they say, were fed. So they're estimating 15 to 20,000 people that were present. And so this took place. And also, if you read Mark chapter 4 to Mark chapter 8, there are all these miracles taking place. So Jesus is healing the blind. He's, you know, someone that's mute starts speaking. Someone that's deaf starts hearing. <coughs> and he's also walking on water. He calms the storms and he feeds the 5,000 with five loaves of bread. And not long after that, I'm speaking about weeks after that, 
or months after that, the disciples found themselves in Mark chapter 8, and this is where we pick up that story. So during those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? If we look at our city, Bloemfontein, the needs are overwhelming. How many times have you driven past something or someone in our city and you recognize a need and you just say to yourself, oh, but it's impossible. It's just so big. I mean, poverty. I mean, come on, seriously. Do you think you're going to do something about poverty with giving your five rand to someone? You know, or even if it's if you're very, very generous, would it really make a difference? And we get overwhelmed by the bigness of the need. Pretty much the same for these disciples. Jesus, how are we going to feed 4,000 people? In this, we basically in the desert. They were in a desert space, right? And then verse 5. And so this is the key. This is the key. If you want to know how God has moved his church over the past 2,000 years, you know I wonder how God has changed communities always? The key is in verse 5. Jesus asks them, how many loaves do you have? Not what you don't have. He didn't ask them, how many loaves do you think it will take to feed 4,000 people? Be honest, that's where I would have started. So if we want to solve poverty, how much money do we need? How, much, how many resources? How many education centers do we need? What should schooling look like? What should happen in our economy if we want to address you know, unemployment or poverty in our city? That's where I would have started. If we want to feed 4,000 people, how many loaves of bread do we need? It's a bit of math. That's where I would have started. Where does Jesus start? What do you have in your hand? Remember some time before that, there's this very same God standing in front of Moses. And the most powerful empire at that stage were you know, treating the Israelites as slaves. And God says, Moses, I want you to go and free the people. And Moses is like, but uh, not trying to be sarcastic, but how? <laughs> how do we do that? And even in Moses' story, the question is basically, Moses, what do you have in your hand? I've got a stick, a staff. What are you going to do with a stick? God says, well, that's more than what I bargained for. He says, that's more than enough, Moses. And then he can't speak properly. He says, that's also not a problem because that way you're going to need someone else with you. I'm going to send Aaron because that's the way the church works. God looks at Moses and says, a stick is more than what I need. You're going to use that stick it's going to be some nice magic tricks you're going to do with a snake and it's going to become a, a stick again and your snake's going to eat the other snakes and you know that story? That very same stick, you're going to hit a rock and water will gush out. That stick you will lift up and the Red Sea will open in front of you. I'm going to use that stick of yours. <laughs> That's where God starts. How many loaves do you have? Seven. They were, when they said seven, they were basically saying, not enough, Jesus. <laughs> we did the calculation, not enough. 
He told the crowd to sit down on the, gro- on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. Jesus could have done it himself, but he chooses to do the miracles in the hands of the disciples. Friends, any movement in the history of this world that was a godly movement, it happened inside of the hands of the disciples. The the things that God wants to do that really will touch people's lives, it'll happen through your hands. You're going to think you don't have enough to give, but it's going to happen in your hands. That's the way God chooses to work, is with partnership. So, so that's why I've got this one guy um, that I enjoy listening to, Andy Stanley, he always says he feels that churches should stop praying for revival and they should just start working a little bit harder. <laughs> because that's where revival happens. It's when we are doing things, when we're out there serving, being active, not only praying for it, You can pray for revival, but just know this. God has already got the answer for revival, and it's you. He wants to use us, that which we have, and then he wants to come and do a miracle even through our hands. And they did so. Verse 7, they had a few small fish as well. So it's also interesting, probably not important at all, but uh, interesting, this was sardines. So in the other miracle, it wasn't sardines, it was normal bigger fish, but over here they only had sardines because this area was known for their sardines. So sardines meaning you can't feed many people with them, right? God can use sardines. If he can use sardines, he can use you. That's the point. (laughs) They had a few very small fish as well. He gave thanks to them. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. God chooses to work through partnership. That's where the miracle takes place. Verse 8. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Seven basketfuls. Now, I want to quickly just tell you this, though. Quite an interesting fact. So in the, the previous miracle, Mark chapter 6, afterwards there were 12 basketfuls of leftovers. Now there's seven basketfuls leftovers. The first basket that they're referring to, the Greek word for that one, is a, let me just quickly find it here, if I can find it. It's called a kopinos. Kopinos. Eleni will tell me afterwards if I pronounce the Greek word correctly. But this was basically your picnic basket size. So 12 basketfuls, but picnic size baskets. But when it speaks about the miracle of the 4,000, it speaks about a spuris. Spuris. Now a spuris is a, um, a woven reed basket that was man-sized. It's a man-sized basket. It's the same kind of basket that Paul actually uh, was let down from a second or third floor um, in, in Acts chapter 9 when he escaped. So a man can physically sit in this basket. So seven man-sized full of baskets. And speaking about the provision of God, that there'll always be enough. Verse 9, about 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. And then, after this, the Pharisees hear about this. So the Pharisees find Jesus, and they're always trying to trick him. And so they come to Jesus, and then verse 11 happens. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. But just, just... 
just quickly think about this for a moment. So this Jesus, the reason the Pharisees know about him is because of his miracles. Otherwise, they wouldn't, have, wouldn't by this time, they wouldn't have known about Jesus. It was because of his miracles and the fame that he was busy getting that the Pharisees knew about him. And they came to him, and this is after they not only heard, but they saw some of the miracles probably also. You know, blind people seeing, lame people walking, deaf people hearing, 5,000 people being fed, and now 4,000 people being fed. This is like the next day. And the Pharisees say, can you give us a sign from God to confirm that you are the Son of God? And Jesus, at this moment, is fed up. (laughs) I mean, after all of these signs, these wonderful signs from God, they still don't believe. And so verse 12, he sighed deeply. <sighs> Have you ever thought Jesus would get irritated? Yes, he did. He didn't sin, sin in, the, in the moment when he got irritated. But I think Jesus was very irritated here. He sighed deeply. Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. I reckon when Jesus says this, he's basically telling them, listen, if you don't believe by now, you're never going to believe. There's no sign that's going to convince you. Uh, Michael Eaton actually says this. He says, faith is irrational. Faith is irrational. What he means by that is, it's not like you're going to see a sign, in other words, have evidence, and then as a result of evidence, have faith. That's not, by definition, that's not what faith is. Faith is to believe something even when you don't have the evidence. And so faith does not come by a sign. That, that, because then it's not faith. If you are working only because of signs and only because of evidence, you don't have faith. Right. By definition, that's not faith. I mean, maybe this is what, something that you need to hear today. But maybe there's something in your heart that God is stirring Maybe you shouldn't ask for a sign. Maybe just walk and step out in faith. (laughs) Because what you're actually asking for is for evidence. Jesus, give me proof (laughs) that you'll have my back. And Jesus is saying, no, give me proof that you trust me. That's what faith is. Showing God that we trust him. And so he's saying, listen, there's no sign that's going to convince you guys. If you don't believe because of these miracles, there's no way, you know, there's no other sign that will actually be enough. And then it goes on to this next part, verse 13. So right after this altercation with the Pharisees, after what happened with the 4,000, so it's probably speaking about days after, right? Jesus had enough of the Pharisees, he gets into the boat, verse 13. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples, listen to this band of very clever disciples, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. So you have to understand there's a theme here. This same God that gave manna from heaven, bread from heaven in the desert to the Israelites, has now just shown them how he can provide with five loaves to 5,000 people, and there's 12 baskets full left, and with, four, with seven loaves to 4,000 people. Now this person, the bread maker, you know, the one that multiplies bread, is sitting in the boat. And the disciples look at one another. I don't think we've got enough bread. We only have one loaf. And they get concerned about the fact that they only packed one loaf of bread. But in the boat is the one that multiplies bread. 
I don't know if, if you, let's quickly read that and then I'll comment. So, if disciple to bring bread, except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. And then Jesus says, be careful, Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. So Jesus is saying, listen, I just had a conversation with the Pharisees and now you guys are worried about this one loaf of bread after everything that has just happened. You're sounding a lot like those Pharisees. That's basically what he was saying. When he says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees, he's saying, watch out. You are sounding a lot like those unbelieving Pharisees right now. It's just, just be careful. You sound exactly like them. So here's the second thing that Michael Eaton says. He says, not only is faith irrational, but unbelief is also irrational. I mean, these disciples, they were struggling with unbelief in this moment. But that is irrational for them, right? I mean, they saw all of the miracles. They saw Jesus walking on water and Jesus commanding a storm to be quiet just before this. That's when those two miracles actually take place. And then he multiplies bread two times. First time, he got lucky, right? Second time, you start thinking he might be the son of God. But that happens, yet they still struggle to believe that Jesus has got us. That's unbelief, but that's a bit irrational, right? I don't know if you've ever been there. I bet you have. But where you doubt God where you are right now, and you think back on the times where God was faithful, I'm sure all of us, all of you, you've got a story like that where a time in your life where you felt like, oh dear, I'm in trouble. There's no way out for me. There's 4,000 people to feed. I've got nothing. Seven loaves. Have you ever felt like that personally? Maybe with finances, with any other situation? We really felt like I'm at the end of myself. I'm in trouble here. And if you think back now, you realize that God brought you through it. God was faithful. He came through for you. But even though we have experienced that, sometimes we still doubt. <laughs> and that's what was happening with the disciples. They were very human in this way. Verse 16, they discussed with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. So they were still not understanding what Jesus was trying to tell them. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketful pieces did you pick up? They were the ones picking it up. He asked them, how many basketfuls? He said, 12. And when I broke the seven loaves but the, uh, for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Seven. So then they still doubt. They've got the bread maker with them, yet he's still doubt. Now, after that, verse 21, he says, he said to them, do you still not understand? Now, I believe Jesus was making two points in that last part, where he was reminding them of the 12 baskets and the seven baskets. He was making two points. The first one is that, don't you remember that I'm the one that can multiply bread? Why are you concerned now? But the second one was the symbol of the 12 and of the 7, which I'll quickly explain uh, in a moment. Maybe just on that first one. Um, how many of uh, our, our community groups are busy doing a resource by Alan Platt? And it's called Life Work. Uh, how many of you have done session five? 
Okay, so I don't know how many of you have already done session five. So that's the one on generosity. So there's this, so if you haven't done, you'll probably get to that one. But there's a very cool story in it that I quickly want to tell where Alan Platt explains about this father. And this father goes with his son, little kid, to McDonald's. Now, you know that McDonald's, their best thing is their chips, their fries, right? It's so nice and thin, and it's just salty enough. You just can't stop eating them, right? So, so they're amazing. And the kid says, I want fries. I just want fries. That's what I want. And the dad says, okay, I'll get you large fries that you have enough. And then the dad felt, well, he doesn't want anything. And then they sat down. And as the kid was busy eating his fries, you know, that smell started convincing the father that he also wants a bit of fries. And then he started helping himself to a few fries. And at that moment, what did the child do? Mine. <laughs> the child looks at the father and says, no, no, mine. Do your chips, up. Get your own chips. It's mine. My kids say that word quite often. That's how a parent... That's when the parent realizes that your child is a sinner. He's got the seed of Adam in him when he says, mine, okay? And so the child says, mine, and then the father goes on to explain, and he was just amazed by this kid, thinking, my son, don't you know that I can buy all of the fries in the shop? If I wanted to, I, I could call them, and they can literally cover you in fries. You will eat fries until you vomit, I promise you there will be enough fries because I am the one that buys fries. I am the fries buyer. <laughs> and that's what Jesus was telling his disciples. I am the bread maker. Why are you concerned about bread? I mean, come on. Don't you trust me? Do you trust that your father in heaven has got a big fat wallet and he loves you? You see, sharing is difficult Primarily because we are concerned that we will not have enough. It's out of fear that we struggle to share. It's, uh, stinginess is just a result of, of fear. You're afraid to, to actually share. But generosity, on the other hand, is trusting the Father, saying, I'm going to be fine. Because I've got the Heavenly Father looking after me. The fries don't look after me. The bread doesn't look after me. The Father looks after me. And it becomes easier for them to trust. So that's the one part. But then the second part where Jesus was trying to communicate to them, and this is beautiful, he was trying to show them the will of the Father in this world. You see, the disciples thought that Jesus is going to be their Messiah for the Jews. He is going to liberate the Jewish people from King Herod, and he is going to liberate them from the Roman government. So, so they thought Jesus is our answer for us Jewish people. But Jesus was trying to show them that that's not my father's heart. The father's heart is that all nations would become my nation. And so in Mark, so I've got a, I've got a, a, a little map that I quickly want to show you. Um, so sorry if this sounds like a history lesson, but it does make the word come alive a little bit. So... These two areas, basically, are on the left hand of this big river. So you've got the Sea of Galilee on top, and then the Jordan River, and then the Dead Sea, right here at the bottom. Everything to the left was under the control of King Herod. Okay, so this was the Jewish people, the Jewish nations. Um, there was a lot of uh, areas that were sort of mixed because uh, of the Roman government that was actually in charge in, the, in, this, in this moment. But Jesus, if you go even 
up north, there are places that are mentioned in the book of Mark where Jesus went to go and heal people outside of those Jewish borders. He went to the Gentiles, meaning the non-Jews, and he ministered to them also, and he healed them. But in this moment where this miracle actually takes place is on this side. So this is the Decapolis, or basically the area of 10 cities. Now, the disciples didn't like that side because those were seen as the, the seven nations of Canaan, the seven nations of Canaan. And those were seen as ungodly people. Uh, so there was this Greek influence. There was even, you know, babies being offered to their gods. Um, they were eating pork, which was horrible for that time, you know, if you're a Jew. And um, they were basically immoral and worshipping Baal. They were not part of God's people. Yet Jesus was always drawing his disciples across the borders, saying, let us go to the other side. And it's in that area where this miracle actually takes place. So I want you quickly to backtrack with me. Just a few chapters in the book of Mark. So just before this, Jesus busy ministering all over the place. And then Mark chapter 5, verse 1, he tells his disciples, let us go to the other side. And when they get to the other side, it's very uncomfortable. That's when the first storm miracle happens. There's a storm. Jesus calms the storm. Someone said, well, that's usually what happens. When God calls you to go to the other side, it's not smooth sailing always. And then we, you know, have got lots of reason to quit. But just because it's not smooth sailing doesn't mean God's not calling you to it. Right, and so they go to the other side. And then in verse 18, um, oh, sorry, no, Mark chapter 5, when they got to the other side, what happens is there is a man with demons. Not only one demon, but he's demon-possessed. And Jesus asks, what is your name? And then they say, my name is Legion, because we are many. Many, many demons. Jesus chases the demons out of the man into the pigs. That's the story when the pigs run into the ocean and they drown. And then the farmers come and they say, Jesus, I think it's better for you to leave because he's messing up their economy. He didn't want them to come and interrupt their way of life, right? But he heals this one man, demon-possessed man. And then they get back into the boat and then they go back to the other, other side. So, so they went to the wrong side, now they're going back to the right side. And when they are back in, call it the right side, with the Jewish people, that's where the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 takes place. He breaks the five loaves, two fishes, and 12 basketfuls is picked up in the Jewish uh, nation in the area where the miracle took place. And then Jesus again tells his disciples, let's go back to the other side. And then they go back to the wrong side. And in Mark chapter 5, uh, sorry, before that, um, in Mark chapter 5, when he heals the demon-possessed man, uh, there's a, in verse 18, the man comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, please take me with you. And then Jesus says, no, you should not come with me. I want you to go back to your people and tell them what God has done for you. And then Jesus leaves him, goes back to this side. The next time when Jesus comes, and this is in Mark chapter 6, verse 54, listen to this. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And so in this area of the Decapolis, right, they arrive there and everyone knows. Jesus' fame has spread, obviously, by other means also. But this man, he healed one man. When he got back, it was a crowd. 
a crowd of people waiting for Jesus. And so the way that Jesus unlocked this pagan area was through a demon-possessed man. If God can use a demon-possessed man, I'm willing to bet he can use me. I didn't hear anyone manifesting this morning, so I don't think anyone is demon-possessed here. So I reckon all of you are one step better. Now, if he can use a demon-possessed man, that's what he chose, to use that man to open up a new area. And then, in that area, that's where the miracle takes place. Seven loaves, 4,000 people, seven man-sized basketfuls picked up afterwards. So what was left over? Not only is Jesus speaking to them about the abundance, but it's also a symbol of the 12 baskets representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus, Jesus showing them, I came to be the bread of life for the 12 tribes of Israel, but also for the seven nations of Canaan. And that's the seven basketfuls that were picked up, representing the seven nations of Canaan that was living on the other side. And Jesus trying to explain to his disciples, my friends, I am not the Messiah to the Jews. I am the Messiah to the world. That is the heart of the Father. Now, friends, if, just to start wrapping this up, if that is what God is busy doing, if God is the God that loves to reach over to the other side and bring restoration and to make new that which was broken, if that is the work that God is into, and secondly, God is the kind of God that never likes to work on his own, but he prefers to use people. If you, if you agree with me that that theme is straight through the Bible, if that is the kind of God that we serve, that he loves going to the other side and he uses people, not because of their resources, but in spite of their resources, not because of their charismatic personalities, but in spite of it, that God is the God that uses the seven loaves, not because seven loaves is a lot of loaves, but because it's not enough. If that's the kind of God, if that's the kind of work that he's into, then it means we are called to the other side. We are called to go into a place of discomfort and in that place of discomfort, in the other side, to bring what we have. Not be concerned about what we don't have, but literally just bring what we have and see what God can do with it. And as all of us do that, and as we do that as a church, I honestly believe a miracle can take place. A city can be transformed. It's not, it's not something you can work out mathematically. It's going to have to be a miracle. It's going to have to be the work of God. But he's going to do it through us. Imagine if all of the Christians in Bloemfontein started living like that. And so here's a question for you. Where is there maybe an area in your life, maybe a relationship, someone you know, colleague, family member, where God is calling you to reach out to the other side. Where is there maybe just a need, in the place where you work or where you function, where you live, just a need, where you see, well, there's a need, and I think we can do something. I know we only have seven loaves. It's not like we're not going to change the world. That's fine. Don't try and do that. Just bring your seven loaves. Where is there a need? Maybe it's in your neighborhood. Just where you say, I'm going to step out and just try and address a need here. 
I think this is a challenge for each of us personally. But then also, we do believe that as a church, we also have certain things that God calls us to do together. And so individually, they are going to the other side, bringing what you have, but also as a church. And that's, uh, that's just where this ties into the generosity fund, which I'll tell you about in a moment, but I first want to pray for us. But so together as a church, we are called to go to the other side and have faith and bring what we have. But as individuals, what is God saying to you? Let's stand together. Let's quickly pray for that. Lord Jesus, with your Holy Spirit, what, what, won't you come and show us the areas of need where we can go to the other side? And Jesus, will you give us the courage to be able to really trust you, to bring what we have and knowing that we're going to be okay because we've got you looking after us? Would you give us the courage to be more generous and more open people with everything, God? not only with our resources, but even with our time and our talents, God. May we be a people that is open and outwardly focused, focused on other people, not only on ourselves. Give us the courage for that. And God, come and show us the opportunities where we can bring what we have to start making a difference. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you for tuning in. If you would like to know more about us, you can visit our website or follow us on social media at Doxadeo Bloemfontein North. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. See you next time.